You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Alex Thier, and I am the executive director here at uh, the Overseas Development Institute. Thank you so much for coming uh, to what I think is going to be a fantastically important and needless to say, um, as topical as you can get conversation about the future of the Paris Agreement. Um, uh, one or two things to start us off. Uh, first of all, um, we are not expecting a fire drill today, I will say that. So if there's a fire alarm, uh, please, uh, there are fire exits on both sides of the building and please make your way out calmly. Uh, we're supposed to say that at the beginning of every event, but we're all thinking about it, especially these days, unfortunately. Um, uh, we have a terrific panel of speakers here today, which uh, I will let Isabel, uh, our chair, introduce to you. Um, but I want to start out just by saying a, a few things to warm up the discussion. Um, the first of all, because I have a hard time hiding it, so I'm just going to say it, I'm angry. Um, I'm angry at what happened in London this weekend in my newly adopted home. Um, and I'm angry at what happened on Thursday. Um, and I'm angry because I think, um, as the panel is going to talk about, we have been on an incredibly important journey over the last couple of decades to find common ground and to think about how to address what is one of the most fundamental challenges, uh, not only of our time, but I think probably that humanity has ever faced. Um, and in seeing that process and the incredible progress that we made culminating in the passage of the Sustainable Development Goals, which put climate at the center of a developed and equitable planet, and then the Paris Agreement following immediately after that, uh, we reached a high point of cooperation, of concern, of a goading uh, to action for all of us. Um, and to see that move backward, I think, is deeply troubling. So I just want to say four things, please welcome, <laughs> uh, that uh, I think we know. Uh, we know that this planet is heating up. Um, and this, again, is not an abstract thing. I was in Uganda and Kenya uh, last week that are facing, once again, unprecedented levels of drought. 15 of the last 16 years are the highest ever temperatures recorded on record. Uh, there's this terrible evidence of a 17-mile-long crack formed last week in an Arctic ice shelf. So these are things that are happening today. And the reason I emphasize that, particularly here in ODI, is the second part, which is that the impacts are enormous and cruelly are going to affect the poorest, the least able to deal with them the worst. The least, the people who had the least amount to do with the situation that we are in the worst. The third thing, though, that I think is critical for us to remember, and we're seeing it all around the world, is that massive progress on these issues actually is possible. Not only as a result of the Paris Agreement, this has been going on for a long time, but some countries will maybe hear more about this, like India and China, 
uh, have already begun to put things in place that have outstripped some of the ambition of the commitments that were agreed to only a couple of years ago. This is, of course, also true in the United States, where 14% of the 27%, uh, or roughly thereabouts, commitment um, was already met. Um, and so massive progress is possible. But, uh, and this is the kicker for me, you know, the United States is the largest historic polluter on the planet, remains the second largest polluter in the world today. So what the United States does about its own Paris commitment does actually matter. It's wonderful to see states and cities and corporations stepping up to say that they're going to do something, uh, despite what uh, happened on Thursday with President Trump pulling out of the agreement. But don't kid yourself into thinking that what the U.S. federal government does doesn't matter. It's also because the U.S. government has heretofore been one of the biggest donors in helping other countries to meet their commitments. Uh, when I was traveling just now, you see people, again, this is not abstraction, people are making decisions every day about whether to invest in a solar field or in a new coal power plant. Those micro decisions which happen all over the planet every day are made one way or another based on small nudge factors, resources that are available, political will, financial commitments. If those things dissipate, then action uh, will likely dissipate as well. Um, so it is really my honor to welcome everybody here for this conversation today. Thank you for those who are online. If you're interested in joining this conversation, you can send us questions. You can also tweet using the hashtag Global Challenges. And let me turn over to our contributing chair, Isabel Hilton. Isabel is a renowned writer and broadcaster and founder and editor of China Dialogue, an independent organization based in London, Beijing, and San Francisco. So over to you, Isabel. Thank you very much, Alex. I think since that um, billing was drawn up, uh, I should perhaps update it to London, Beijing, Delhi, and uh, Sao Paulo, where we think that uh, climate discussions might be even more fruitful than uh, San Francisco. Um, China Dialogue is a bilingual Chinese-English website which publishes in both directions on all aspects of uh, climate and environment. We, we, we've been going about 11 years now, and uh, we now publish in eight languages um, across four websites on all these issues. So... We sit in London in, in terms of the head office, but we are uh, very much engaged with the world that, that our panel uh, is also engaged in. And it's a particular pleasure uh, for me to uh, be in this company uh, at this moment uh, discussing this issue with you all. Um, so welcome to all of you in the room and welcome to all of you uh, online. Um, the tweet, just to remind you, is hashtag global challenges. And those of you who are watching remotely can send in questions, and I will get them, I believe, on this iPad. We have yet to test this system, so I hope it works. Um, so let me welcome the speakers. Um, on my immediate right, Kumi Naidu, who's the launch director of this new initiative, Africans Rising. He's the former international executive director of Greenpeace, and I'm sure known to many of you, been involved in these issues for a very long time. On his immediate right, uh, Sheila Whitley, who is... Uh, uh, an, an in-house uh, expert and uh, head of the program of climate and energy. Uh, we had the pleasure of working on fossil fuel subsidies so over the last uh, few years. And on her uh, immediate right, Stuart James, who's the managing director and deputy head of group uh, for government affairs for HSBC. And so the format is we're going to have, we're going to hear something from, uh, from our speakers. We, we're then going to have a 
general discussion uh, here and and then we're going to widen the discussion both to those of you in the room and to and to people watching online. So I want to start um, with you, Kumi, and I know you've just flown in from South Africa. So thank you for being awake first. Uh, we're, we're extremely impressed. It's a great pleasure to have you here. And I think the question that's on everybody's mind, of course, is the US withdrawal and, and what's the meaning, not, not the motivation, but what's the meaning, the impact, the result of the US withdrawal as you see it now? I think, th thank you and good morning, everybody. Uh, <coughs> to answer that question, one needs to contextualize a few things. First, we should probably go back. We can go back much further, but for, well, maybe we start with the first climate negotiations in Rio, where George Bush Sr. wagged his finger and said, the American way of life is non-negotiable, right? Then fast forward to Copenhagen in uh, 2009, where we went there trying to secure what we called a fab deal. Uh, not a fabulous deal, but a fair, ambitious, and binding deal. What we got in Copenhagen was a flab outcome, FLAB, full of loopholes and bullshit, right? <laughs> so when we were going to Paris we, uh, six years later, we said, we're not going to talk about the road to Paris. We're going to talk about the road through Paris because we saw Paris as an important moment. We knew that the politics was not aligned to give us the kind of deal that we actually wanted out of Paris. And therefore, when we hear this outcome uh, statement from Trump, um, we need to then look at what were people around the world saying about the Paris Agreement. Because right now, uh, there's been quite an interesting reportage over the last, say, three, four days, because I did one interview, for example, with a television station in New York called Democracy Now!, and I said that Trump's long speech um, could be seen as one of the longest suicide notes to the world, uh, in the sense that essentially, if Trump's intention prevails, right, then in fact, we are talking about a slippery slope to climate catastrophe much faster than anybody anticipated. But just to remind ourselves, we said that the Paris Agreement gave us the space to live to fight another day, right? The Paris Agreement from the Global South perspective, from the environmental uh, justice movements and so on, we didn't see it as a unqualified success. Okay, it's important that we remind ourselves of that. But what we did succeed to do in Paris was building what we call a ratcheting mechanism, right? Which is this five-year review, because the ambitions on the table and the commitments made on the table is actually taking us to absolute climate catastrophe anyway, right? Uh, because Just remind people. Of the, of the projects made, where they take... Okay, the so, yeah. So, uh, depending exactly how you count it, and there's always difficulties in the counting, but the pledges on the table at the moment is taking us at least to a 3.54 degree work. Okay? So you got that reality based on what countries said they're going to do. If you take everything that countries said they're going to do and put it on the table before Trump's speech, we're heading for a four degree world. But then you look at the document 
and we fought really, really hard to have 1.5 degrees in play. And let me just say that 1.5, for me personally, in 2015, I went through a very deeply emotional process around it. And you might wonder, how could you go through an emotional process around a figure which has degrees at the end? Because in July, in 2015, I was in the Pacific and people were chanting, the slogan they were chanting, 1.5 to stay alive, 1.5 to stay alive. Six months later, when we got to Paris, the very same people that I saw were chanting, 1.5, we might survive. So within that context, Trump's decision is problematic because it takes, as Alex said, the biggest historical polluter out of the picture where that player is not willing to live up to their expectations. It sends a wrong kind of sense about urgency about the problem of climate change. But I want to conclude this answer by just bullet pointing the positive things. Fundamentally, I think Bush, uh, sorry, Trump's statement has some positive things in it. Firstly, Trump is reviled amongst the majority of people in the world. And if Trump gets up and says the climate change agreement is bad and climate change is a non-issue, then hopefully it's going to galvanize a large number of people. And within a couple of days, you are seeing that across the world, right? And suddenly, climate is a conversation again. And let's be clear that we need to be having significantly more conversations about climate change, given how serious it is, than we are having. And there has been a little bit of a sense, oh, we got the Paris Agreement, we got the SDGs in September, we got things more or less on track now, let's just go back and, you know, more or less business as usual. So Trump has sent us a message that it cannot be business as usual. Secondly, the U.S. pulling out of the treaty, fundamentally it's a problem. But bear in mind that the U.S. in every negotiations in climate has pushed for minimalism, right? The level of ambition in Paris Accord would have been significantly higher if the U.S. wasn't one of the negotiators in it, okay? So that opens up a little bit of... But more importantly, it's galvanized people in the United States. I'm not sure whether everybody knows that um, former mayor of New York, Bloomberg, has led an initiative where he's brought together mayors, governors of certain states. At this stage, it's only three states and American business, the progressive elements of it. And they've now starting a dialogue with the United Nations saying, we as American people and institutions are going to live up to the, to the commitments that our government made in Paris. And they're mobilizing money, they're mobilizing, you know, the kinds of infrastructure that's needed and so on. So bluntly, it's obviously not a good thing. But, you know, we have to have an attitude right now where if we take last week's statement as a moment for us to be demobilized, depressed, anxious, frustrated, this is the last thing we want to do. We need to actually take a deep breath. And as Christiana Figueres uh, said, uh, 
She said she had a, what, a 35 minutes of grief. No, she, went, she seemed to go through the stages of grief in about 30 seconds and came out saying thank you because, she, because Trump had mobilized, um, yeah. had mobilized the opposition. So both within, yeah. Yeah. And both within the U.S. and, and globally. So let me end by saying that for a person who comes from a continent that collectively carries very limited levels of historical <laughs> responsibility for the accumulation of carbon and other greenhouse trapping gases, for a person who comes from a continent where we are losing lives and infrastructure now, as Alex observed in his visit just recently, we are seeing the intensification of climate-intensified uh, drought, uh, climate-intensified desertification, climate-intensified uh, uh, flooding, and so on. Uh, and where we are seeing parts of the African continent becoming depopulated now as a result of water scarcity, land scarcity, giving you the toxic mix of food scarcity. From a person coming from that kind of background, can I say what a deep, deep betrayal uh, the position that the U.S. president would take, uh, given the historical responsibility the U.S. carries, given that 65% of the American people want action, and given that Donald Trump's children are as important beneficiaries to taking climate action as the child of an African woman peasant farmer in a small unknown village anywhere in Africa. So within that context, I think we must understand that it's a deep betrayal. Thank you very much. Um, I've been asked just to say something about China uh, at this point, which I'm which I'm very happy to do. Um, and one of the things that's been striking, I think, in the last um, few months since it became clear that Trump at least had an ambivalent position since the American election, um, there has been some focus on the question of whether, uh, in the absence of what people rather indulgently call U.S. climate leadership, um, whether China might uh, might step up. You know, they're the two. They're, they are both the the biggest emitters. China, the biggest emitter. The U.S., the second biggest emitter in in by volume. Although, you, as you know, you can cut these numbers many different ways. Um, and and whether I mean the, the, and there have been some very interesting signals from China on that on that score, uh, beginning with Xi Jinping in Davos, uh, where he steps up and says China is a responsible, reliable partner. We will not resile from our commitments, um, and followed up by uh, any number of of statements from senior officials, including Li Keqiang, in his visit to Europe um, last week, uh, and the EU. China statement on climate change. So I think that there is no doubt, um, and actually I never did have a lot of doubt about China's uh, commitment to the Paris Agreement. And I think just going back over how profound that commitment is might be helpful because I do find people uh, sometimes haven't quite understood how far the Chinese position has come since Copenhagen, when China was certainly identified by many, and not, not only by advanced countries or, or, or famously by the Maldives, as, as a kind of bad boy in Copenhagen. So what's been happening in, in the decade that I've been looking closely at, at China's climate policy is an accumulation of the domestic impacts of the industrial model which are manifest in air, water, soil pollution, which makes the government politically vulnerable. It's a sensitive topic, even for an authoritarian 
government. So that had to be addressed. Also, the fact that they are engineers means that they get the physics. They have no problem about the science, and climate denial is not a huge issue in China. There was a reluctance to commit to... They were a non-Annex uh, 1 signatory of the Kyoto Protocol, which meant that they did not have to take on mandatory emissions cuts. And China, 10 years ago, was also still addressing the question of its own development and had chosen a particularly carbon-intensive model. So all of that had to be thought about uh, before this great emissions tanker could be turned around in any way. But between Copenhagen and, and Paris, uh, a remarkable uh, transformation did indeed take place. And it was partly um, the result of the input from a lot of expert opinion around the Central Committee and the Politburo as to the dangers of climate change for China. But it was also the result of the, the point in the economic cycle that China had reached, which was that that very dirty, high-polluting, uh, industrial model was becoming exhausted. And this is a pattern that you see in every Asian tiger. China is just a very, very big Asian tiger in this respect, that you start off moving your population off the land into factories, making cheap T-shirts, cigarette lighters, you know, high volume, low wage economy, uh, driven disproportionately by investment and, and exports. As your wage uh, levels rise and your labor becomes more expensive, you move up the value chain, you start assembling te technology, and eventually you start inventing it. And China had got to the point where the old industrial model was exhausted, and it is and still is contemplating the complexities of the middle income trap and the question of what the next generation of technologies will be and how can China dominate them with its still substantial manufacturing capacity and, and how is it to make its living in the post, um, in its post-dirty industrial world. And somewhere around the beginning of the 12th five-year plan, we're halfway through the 13th now, um, they, those technologies and that future was identified as a low-carbon future. They looked at the world and they said, we are going to need energy efficiency, we are going to need clean technologies, we, are, we China are going to invest in these for our own manufacturing capacity, we are going to invest in leading research in all aspects of clean technologies, and we will be the supplier to a, a carbon-constrained global market. So by the time you get to the run-up to Paris, China had a strategic economic interest in a global deal. Now, that doesn't mean it was bound to happen. And the other key factor in that, uh, in enabling it to happen, was the relationship with the Obama administration, the relationship with the United States. If you, I don't know if you, uh, any of you follow this discussion on the, this Thucydides trap, which has been very live in the States. This is the, um, the, the, the theory that a, a, a rising power and an established or declining power will always come to war, much discussed in the context of China and the United States. Will there be conflict or will there be a new set of, of, of international relations which will allow the rise of a power as big as China to be, to be peaceful? Um, I only mention it because because China's gaze is almost always fixed on the United States and the United States' gaze is very often fixed on China and this is a political complication domestically. To transform that into a constructive conversation around climate was, was 
incredibly important and very successful. So at a time when US-China diplomatic relations were pretty toxic, the one very positive aspect of them was the climate discussion. And that was a combination of, of technical support, of diplomatic support, um, and of, of the construction of that conversation as a, a, a winning conversation for both of them. And so the US-China climate conversations and statements were absolutely key enablers of the Paris Agreement. So where are we now? The one partner has left the stage yet again. I think that China clearly will not, as I said, resile from its commitments, but it has been slightly thrust into a leadership position with which it is not entirely comfortable. This is not a position that China would have wished to be in. Uh, in terms of the global diplomacy. But nevertheless, you know, a lot is going to be expected of China at this point in terms of being a solid partner. And I think that China is expressing that through the uh, statements with the EU. But if we were to expect China to do the kind of mobilizing of the diplomatic map that is going to be required around Paris, I'm not sure we're going to see that. That's not what China has experience of. It's not what China's particularly good at. And China will be looking for partners and looking for encouragement um, in going forward. Um, in terms of its own INDCs, they're absolutely well within its comfort zone. So will China then be keen to ratchet up in the kind of leadership to a, to a degree that would express leadership, we shall see. China also has laggards within its own economy. Um, it's exporting emissions through building coal-fired power stations abroad. You know, it's a big country and it's a curate's egg uh, in terms of climate policy. But I think that the message, certainly in the last, well, actually since Paris, uh, has been pretty positive. Um, and it's a pity that the United States has gone the way it's gone. But... Below government-to-government -government level, there are, again, all sorts of partnerships which will continue. Jerry Brown is in Beijing right now at the, at the Clean Energy Ministerial. City-to-city, um, state-to-province partnerships will continue. Um, so, you know, it's not, the end. it's not the end of the road and it's not the end of China's uh, commitment by any means. So I think I've said enough. <laughs> now I'm going to um, move on to, uh, I think, Sheila, you're next on the list. If I, yes, yes, you are next on the list. So as I, I mentioned that we, we worked, uh, we had the pleasure of working with you on the question of fossil fuel subsidies, uh, which is, you know, when, when, when the discussion of energy happens, everybody points out that renewable energies get subsidies and somehow this is unfair. Uh, but not many people appreciate the degree to which the fossil fuel industry is a subsidy junkie. And, you know, it, it, we are not making a whole lot of progress on that. There was no mention of it in the Paris Agreement. And, and I just, you know, as long as they are there, what are the implications? How big an obstacle is this to moving forward from Paris? Yeah, so um, thank you so much um, for the introduction. Thank you so much um, for everyone for being here. Um, our work at ODI has focused on fossil fuel subsidies for about uh, four years, and it came in the context of actually wider work on private climate finance. So in the context of um, the UNFCCC, there were commitments made in Copenhagen around climate finance and mobilizing um, both uh, public climate finance and mobilizing private investment to address climate change. And as you've noted, uh, one of the sort of early discoveries of the work that we did looking at private climate finance is the degree to which governments currently use instruments to support fossil fuels, um, uh, 
primary, you know, primarily to support fossil fuels over and above uh, clean energy or energy efficiency. So when we were trying to understand what levers a government could use to mobilize, I guess, climate finance, we quickly saw that you could look at these instruments that governments were using to, to actually put most of their support behind oil, gas, and coal. Uh, we've done research which finds, uh, we primarily look at the G20 because there's a G20 commitment to phase out fossil fuel subsidies that's found that uh, G20 governments every year provide on average $450 billion of support to fossil fuels. Uh, and I think we'll talk a little bit more in the conversation later about kind of why that happens. But I guess in the context of that, one would expect, and I think we anticipated in the Paris Agreement, that we may get language for the first time actually mentioning fossil fuels or talking about solutions to addressing fossil fuel-based energy and transitioning away from fossil fuel-based energy. What we found was that in the end, there was no mention, as you said, of fossil fuels in the Paris Agreement. There's actually no mention of almost any of the specific solutions in the Paris Agreement. So you don't have a mention of carbon pricing. You don't have a mention of a number of sort of the kind of fiscal or other um, tools that you would expect to sort of be, that governments should be using to solve uh, the climate crisis. But I think um, what Kumi mentioned, and in some ways, although it's not a specific mention of addressing fossil fuels, is that you have this target. You have a, a 1.5 degree target, which is a broad goal, but in order to meet it, you actually have really strict restrictions in terms of what can be exploited in terms of fossil fuels. So if governments are actually to meet the two degree goal or even come close to meeting the 1.5 degree goal, what um, researchers have found is that actually uh, most of the reserves that we currently have of oil and gas, this is not including coal, most of those reserves that are currently in production can't, you, you, that's basically all that you can use. So we can't explore for more oil and gas. We can't really develop um, kind of newly discovered reserves. What it is is sort of reserves that have steel and cement attached to them now is all that we can use in order to stay within those, the, that, um, I guess, that climate, that temperature goal. And that creates a real sort of framework under which um, I guess civil society and others can engage with governments around then what is possible and what what governments have to do, both in terms of um, curtailing demand for fossil fuels, but also addressing supply of fossil fuels. And uh, I think, you know, there have been, as has already been mentioned, there's been sort of very positive developments that we're seeing. And I would argue, you know, there's reasons right now to be very angry. And there's also reasons to be very optimistic. I find it quite difficult because I feel almost sometimes hourly, especially in the last week, I sort of waver between the two because the climate impacts that we're seeing are happening much faster than we would have expected. Um, the, the, the kind of the damage and the risks are higher, but also the technological innovations are happening at paces that are really, I think, out, other than Greenpeace's predictions, you know, the predictions for solar costs have, have, are, you know, far different than what was expected. So we're seeing, you know, these transitions in places like India that are happening much faster. So governments now have to really look carefully at how they can address fossil fuel supply and demand. And the Paris Agreement creates a framework for that and kind of ratcheting objectives to get there. Um, in terms of um, in terms of, uh, of fossil fuel subsidies, again, although they're not mentioned within the Paris Agreement, and we have a paper, I think some of them, copies of it are outside, there are some specific places within the framework of the Paris Agreement that one can, governments can address fossil fuel subsidies. So uh, one of the big ones, sort of we, as I said, we started looking at climate finance is making 
all public finance, so not just climate finance, aligned with um, the 1.5 degree goal. So that means that public, you know, public institutions, multilateral development banks, our bilateral financial institutions should not be providing support to oil, gas, and coal. So that's moving public support away from oil, gas, and coal, and ensuring that, um, in particular, climate finance is not being used um, to support um, fossil fuel um, production and use. Also, the nationally determined contributions under the UNFCCC, there are already a number of governments that have put in place objectives to phase out fossil fuel subsidies. And it's uh, underneath these commitments and these contributions is a place where governments can put forward these commitments to um, kind of support each other. And also, you know, that public finance and development finance can be used to support governments to phase out um, subsidies. And then also we have a kind of, there's a long, longer term strategies, these 2050 plans, where this phase out of fossil fuels overall in the energy sector can be part of those objectives. So there's obviously, even though there's not a mention of fossil fuels, there's a number of places within the Paris Agreement that this issue can be addressed. So it's important to keep that awareness alive. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and we'll, we're so going to come back. Yes, small, yes. Just a small clarification. Uh, when you said only Greenpeace got it right, actually, actually the truth is uh, that was a reference to predicting the solar and wind pricing and how it will come down. And that prediction was made when I, towards the time that I started. The truth be said, we also got it wrong because basically the International Energy Agency or World Bank, everybody got it wrong in terms of how cheap solar and wind will become. It's just that Greenpeace got it least wrong. Yeah. <laughs> we were closest Perfect. to being wrong. It's yeah. an imperfect world. Yeah. Well, well done. Well done. <laughs> so Stuart, I'm going to I, I'm, I'm going to um, bring you in here. Um, HSBC, big bank. We've seen this uh, in a chorus from businesses uh, around the world, but also in the United States, urging Trump you know, not to take the decision that he just took uh, because it's bad for them, it's bad for the economy, it's kind of, it's the wrong future. Why do you think he didn't listen? Well, that's a good, uh, a very good question. Um, and I think the answer is broadly political. But 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 just before I um, go into that, it reminds me, there's a, there's a famous joke um, in the UK um, which uh, it, it's around the relationship between the United Kingdom and the rest of Europe. It says, uh, fog in the channel, continent isolated. And um, it, it reminds me a little bit of, of this situation where we're all sort of tempted to say, you know, the US leaves the uh, Paris Accord, rest of the world isolated. Mm. And of course, exactly the opposite is true. Um, and so if, if, if you really sort of ask the question, why are people seemingly both sort of morally annoyed but economically so far relatively relaxed about this i think it's because uh, the the judgment that people in business and i think other politicians throughout the world are making is that this uh, set of policy actions has reached escape velocity and that the path that we're all in while a decision like you know, like the one that Trump made last last week, will have an impact and does make things a little bit more bumpy. It probably doesn't fundamentally alter the the trend direction that that we're on. So coming back to why he made the decision, well, uh, particularly my role in HSBC, it's not really for me to um, to to judge 
politics, but it's absolutely clear that he, in his campaign, said that this is one of the things he was going to do. And for most politicians, the ability um, to follow through on that and appeal to the base that has voted for you um, is, is a pretty strong attraction, um, particularly if you believe that actually um, most of the rest of the world is going to carry on pretty much as as it was. I don't want to say it's a costless thing to do, that would be wrong. Uh, but I just wonder what the impact is really going to be, uh, you know, in, in terms of economics uh, uh, on the US. You mentioned the other um, constituencies of support. So, you know, we heard from Kumi about the fact that there's a group of mayors and governors that have, if you like, have stepped into what you might call the political vacuum to continue in the right direction. But you also have uh, leading uh, U.S. firms, including in the energy sector, that are also in favour of membership of Paris, and they are also continuing to make investments increasingly um, of a sustainable direction, uh, nature and, and see things moving in that direction. So uh, I think many of the other key actors, in a practical sense, um, are going to are going to continue to move in the in the direction that we would wish them to. Uh, and to some extent, um, this was a you know a political thing for him to do in a political game. Can I just prod you a bit though on the on the kind of unstoppable nature of it? And Cristiano Figueres talked um, just after Paris in in about mobilising finance, and she, I mean, apart from the billions that might or might not eventually get into the Green Climate Fund. What really counts is moving the trillions. And that has been a big source of frustration. You know, the pension funds are still not really, you know, into into yeah. factoring climate into their decisions. The, you know, the, very little of the great financial institutions, very few of the great financial institutions are really seem to be understand the risks of, of climate change. Why have they been so slow? Well, um, let's take the second part of that question first. I mean, I think large financial institutions, um, like any large institution, they tend to react on uncertainty and they make judgments about risk. So one of the uh, important things about Paris, um, particularly, of course, with America on board, is that it, it, it gives a degree of certainty as to what the sort of policy environment is likely to be in the future. Uh, and that signal alone is exactly the sort of thing you you need for the world of finance to begin to respond and make the necessary changes internally to the way that they work uh, in order to make, if you like, a different risk perception. Even still, it takes judgment. You know, we can still, even in this room, have different views about the extent to which or the time frame in which we will be able to begin to achieve some of the, the Paris objectives. But if you judge that the state of the world in the future is such that it's going to move us from a sort of fossil fuel world to a low carbon economy, then you begin inside a large bank or an asset manager to make different judgments about the risk you're putting your assets at, depending on the investments you make, and you move them into the right sort of area. So why is it apparently slow? Well, Paris wasn't that long ago, and I think it takes a while for large institutions to sort of 
change the way in which they do all that internal methodological thinking and begin, if you like, to reflect the fact that in the future we see a world of no fossil fuel subsidies, um, which makes an enormous difference in terms of where you think it is wise, even from just a financial, never mind a moral sense, to put your money. There's a slightly different question. That the first part of your question was about you know pension funds, these long-term asset managers. And, and actually, I think there are a number of sort of not technical answers, but certainly policy-based answers to your question about why that takes time. Um, if you, it's a very interesting. We really need a dating agency. If you ask those who have the money to invest why they don't uh, invest it in this huge, multi-trillion infrastructure gap that, right. that's there, they say, "Well, we don't really have financially viable projects." Yeah. And if you ask the people who have the infrastructure needs, they say, well, we've got the infrastructure need. We we've got a perfectly good project here. Yeah. We just can't get the money. Um, and unfortunately, you have to sort of dig below that. Um, some of it could be about perception, but some of it is also about reality and the need to do a little bit of sort of engineering in order to allow that money to, to flow to the kind of projects we want it to flow to. So um, a typical um, example might be, say, just something as simple as disclosure. There aren't, at the moment, universal and commonly understood standards of disclosure for, say, climate risk, mm. which could apply to a company or it could apply to an infrastructure project. But there is really good work going on through the, um, the FSB task force under the umbrella of the G20 to try and... Could you and... just explain the FSB task force for those who might not know what that is? Yeah, so the, um, the FSB, uh, that's the Financial Stability Board... Um, led by Mark Carney, um, our Bank of England governor here, uh, it began to look at this question from a prudential risk management. In other words, are banks putting um, their uh, money at risk if they continue to invest in, say, traditional fossil fuels? Uh, investing in companies, the assets uh, of which, i.e. coal in the ground, may never be economically viable to bring out. And so rather than see this, as, if you like, as a political question, a moral question the way we all do, he said, well, actually, let's just look at it from a banking regulatory point of view. And, um, and he made a speech, essentially, which pointed out that um, the kind of changes, the problem is that some of the changes that we expect to see in the way that the world will adapt to them are a little bit over the time horizon, over the decision-making processes right. of politicians, of financial regulators, of company CEOs. So they all tend to miss the, um, you know, the, the important information that should really be determining their actions. So that's an institutional and mismatch, isn't it? That's yeah. right. And disclosure is at the heart of that and developing metrics to be able to actually factor in, um, if you like, the, the risk that your company strategy is at for being either in line or out of line with a 1.5 to 2 degrees temperature rise. But if you can get a methodological approach whereby financial institutions and all the large corporates in key sectors are providing that information to investors, then you begin to move the money. So that's the first policy thing that okay. um, hopefully we will see. The now, second one is public-private risk sharing, but we can come to that later. Right, but I don't want you to think I'm picking on you 
Stuart. No, go, but go on. We have a question here from one of our online viewers, which is about HSBC. So, so Rose Simons uh, would like to know, does HSBC have plans to update your lending policies for high carbon clients um, to reflect the goals of the Paris Agreement, be that through engagement or exclusion? Oh, she, she, press, uh, she, her, mm -hmm. she introduces that question with congratulations on your uh, general posture, I should say. But, <laughs> but, but then would yeah. like to know whether, whether inside the bank you're yes. following through. So, uh, I mean, we, we have a number of sort of policies, as, as you would expect in any organisation, uh, around this field and, and other fields, uh, you know, Indigenous people rights, etc. And we always uh, are prepared to you know, look at these and say, are we up to date with the current thinking we often take as our benchmark you know what the current thinking is in other leading firms and or you know what is the world bank the ifc doing etc um what we're doing in hsbc on this issue at the moment um and and we're at the start of a process is looking at all of our business lines whether it be straight lending um you know bond underwriting uh, advisory services around projects, etc. We're looking at all all our global business lines, and we're asking the heads of these business lines to to tell us what being in line with the one point five to two degrees temperature rise means for their business, and um, making that transition. Uh, and then that will then go in their scorecards, as we call them. So from that point onwards, they will be judged about whether they are making progress along that line. Now, to come back to the, to the questions that, that Rose asked, um, you know, we need to see exactly how that looks. But impressionistically, I will say that will mean that people, business managers within HSBC, will have to take a judgment at some point if they are running too high in exposure to firms which are not prepared to make the change to a low carbon economy. Um, and if so, they'll have to think about reducing that exposure. Um, and they'll have to be on the lookout for new clients, of course, who are consistent right. with it. And uh, I don't want to get the impression, particularly to any clients that are on the line, that <laughs> we see this as a sort of, you know, we're just going to drop those who are, you know, are slightly on the wrong side of the line or are a bit traditional. I think we see it very much as just as we are working out what this change make, means for us right. and going through it, that we should be taking our clients along that change too. And we will work to do that. Right. But these are the hard decisions we'll have to make. So, so Sheila and Kumi, we're, we're just going back to the question of the impact of the US withdrawal, I mean, we've, we've talked a bit about leadership and momentum, which is one issue. But while we're on the question of the money, you know, what does that mean? You, you you both think a lot about the impact on the poorest people and the commitments to support uh, poorer countries to make a transition or indeed to deal with the impacts. Do you anticipate that the, the US withdrawal from Paris is going to have a big effect on the money available? Um, well, I guess I... I think that the that climate finance is very important and the the fact that the US has specifically um basically said they're not going to fulfill their commitment under the Green Climate Fund is significant. Uh I think, however, that as some have mentioned, that is the realm of the billions. And uh what we would hope is that this sort of galvanizing force uh will mean that a, a number of the other countries. 
who are committed to the Paris Agreement will potentially step up and provide support in place of the United States, which can fill the gap um, in terms of specific climate finance under the UNFCCC. But I think um, our work at ODI and the work of others is really, um, you know, has moved towards this question of the shifting trillions. And that is about, um, again, this question of fiscal incentives, carbon pricing, fossil fuel subsidies, et cetera, that, and and the reason that the U.S.'s federal role is still very important is that you need governments to send these signals. I mean, the private sector, I would argue, is really often following the signals that are sent by government. And the governments have uh, economic tools, regulatory tools, information instruments that they're using all the time that shapes private money. And, uh, and, and governments of every single country in the world have, um, I, I guess, to a more or greater degree, an ability to use whatever you know, budget resources they have or limited budget resources supported by climate finance or development assistance to shape their economies. And uh, a big shift can happen in some ways just pulling away support from high carbon activities, because even that can level the playing field for low carbon activities. It doesn't necessarily require new resources. And I guess in the context of fossil fuel subsidy reform, what we see is often governments are not taking fossil fuel subsidies away and giving that to renewables under a sort of hypothecation. What you see is governments taking subsidies away and potentially using that for public transportation, for healthcare investment, for education, for spending in other areas. But, but also changing the price ratio yes, by removing the subsidy. Yeah, which which means that you have a leveling of the playing field. So I think, I mean, this is what Paris creates the space for, is governments to use resources differently, to use levers in a different way, which then will change the overall financial picture. And obviously disclosure is a, is a part and parcel of that. But I think the Green Climate Fund, although it's a kind of terrible symbol in terms of fairness and, and support to developing countries, if other governments step up, it's, it doesn't necessarily mean sort of the end of an ability for countries to shift towards both low carbon but also sort of resilient resilient futures so so just could me and picking up on that i mean how is it seen in africa in terms of the richest country and the biggest historical emitter you know no longer contributing but also given that the united states has not withdrawn from unfccc and given that it's not going to get out of paris until three and a half years have passed us electoral cycle comes to mind how much do you think the U.S. is likely to play a blocking role inside the continuing discussions in Paris, even having given the signal that they're going to leave? Well, firstly, I'd like to fully endorse everything uh, Shellac said. Um, I think it's a, this question is a hard one to call about having made the statement, how destructive is the U.S. administration going to seek to be within what the other nations of the world do. It's hard to call it. Uh, I can see pros and cons for which way it will pull. But as I said in one of the interviews I did um, the day he made his announcement, I said, you know, for us in Africa, we're not going to make a judgment of the American people based on what a quasi-fascist crazy president says. Okay. Right. I don't know who you're talking about. Uh, yeah. Uh, and we'll remember, by the way, all the leaders of the world who have adjusted to his presence, uh, including the one that sits in the capital, yeah. Uh, but what we will judge the American people by, by is how they respond to this very irresponsible decision that he's made. So uh, I'm reading... Um, 
two things from your comments, just to make you smile a little bit, right? If you take these two things. So Isabel is actually saying that much as Trump might want to walk away from it tomorrow, actually by the time they follow the process to get out of the agreement that they signed in Paris, it will be exactly at the time of the next presidential elections, right? So that's a good thing because we guaranteed now that climate will be a central, central, central part of the U.S. elections, and that in itself is a good thing because we know then that makes it a global conversation again, which we need to track and intervene to ensure that we bring to that conversation a message of urgency. On the other hand, if Mayor Bloomberg and the other captains of certain big companies in the United States who pay far too less tax to start with and will probably pay much less tax if Trump gets away with his tax yeah. uh, reform, then we will read into the statement that he made out of Paris last week when he stood next to Macron and said, the American people will meet all the obligations that we signed up to in Paris, irrespective if the federal government and Trump doesn't want to do it. So, Mr. Bloomberg, if you are hearing this or your people are, you need to know that we are understanding that it's actually in relative terms a small amount of money for U.S. business, which actually makes a huge amount of money based on resource extraction out of Africa and elsewhere, that it's not an unreasonable uh, expectation that U.S. business will actually fill the gap of uh, the U.S. government. Uh, but I, 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 I'm just tempted to say something about the finance conversation that was on the table. Right? So he, he has a very simple thing, right? What are the two most uh, difficult things that happens in the public conversation, which leaves out 99% of the people, including people who are educated? I would say the two things that are most in, impenetrable, unless you are a specialist in those two areas, is climate and finance. The world of finance and the world of climate, right? separately speaking. right? Listen, I have a, for my sins, I have a PhD from a university here. And when I watch the financial news on the news bulletin, I can tell you, as a person who didn't train in, in economics, it's a bloody concentration to follow exactly what they are talking about, right? So what I'm saying is that part of the problem we have is we've got these very mystified worlds of finance, and climate. And I tell you, on climate, yeah, I want to make a friendly criticism of people like myself and the activist community that we need to start learning to speak like human beings on climate, right? Because we speak about it, we get locked into the jargon, and we, we pretend as if we all are in the conversation. And I'm going to do a small experiment now, right? And please be honest in how you ask the question. You've heard this figure 1.5 and 2 degrees, okay? How many of you know where we are now? Towards, don't put your hand up, right? <laughs> I mean, don't answer it, don't answer it. And, and just, just to be clear for anybody listening who might, when they say that figure, they are saying that from the start of the Industrial Revolution, when we started burning oil, coal, and gas, from that moment into the future, we cannot have a rise beyond one and a half degrees. Now, towards that one and a half degrees, how many of you firstly know how much we have warmed up already towards? One and a half degrees. How many of you know the answer? Please raise your hands. 
Okay, so see, Shilang is going like this. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five. It's not a majority, is it? <laughs> no, it's not a majority. It's not even a quarter. <laughs> and just so you know, when I was at Greenpeace offices, I always used to ask this question and they used to get a similar response, okay? So it's... But the conversation has been framed in a way that we will be left out of it, right? By throwing 350 parts per million, uh, Lulu CF, anybody knows what Lulu CF is? Oh, God. Oh, you, you know? You're a sad person. You know. <laughs> land use, land use change for forestry, right? Uh, so basically, we had 1.1, right? If we, okay, so, so, so let me just say on this finance issue, right? Um, I'm trying to connect it. Think about it from this way. If at 1.1, right, in the last 10 years, we've had more than 100% uh, increase in extreme weather events globally, right? Now, just think, the shit is hitting the fan already. It's not as if the shit has not started eating the fan. And I want to say something uncomfortable now. Richard Curtis, uh, people know him? Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, the, the movie producer, but also activist within Comic Relief. And he was with us in the Make Poverty History campaign in 2005. And he said something that has stuck with me in this climate conversation. He said, in the middle of the Make Poverty History campaign, he said, you know, if 7,000 People were dying in Europe from HIV, uh, from malaria alone every day. If 6,000 people were dying from uh, HIV AIDS in uh, North America, you know, as is happening daily on the African continent, if 3,000 people were dying of tuberculosis, as is every day in Australia, New Zealand, and Japan, you can rest assured we would have fixed the problem a long time ago. And I want to ask you, to think about this very uncomfortable question. Would the urgency be different if the color of the skins of the people that are in the front line of climate impacts, often those that carry the least responsibility, would it be different? And when we look at the reality, I would say what Richard Curtis said on poverty, totally applies to, to climate. But here's the problem for activists in the climate movement. People like myself stand guilty for using this stupid phrase, save the planet. Right? No, seriously, I, I want to suggest to you that save, save the planet. Yeah. Save the planet is not a good thing. The planet actually does not need saving. Because the trajectory we're on is that if we continue to warm on the way that we are, the end result is our water dries up, our soil gets destroyed, we can't plant food, it's too hot uh, to survive. We will be gone, the planet actually will still be here. It'll be brewed, battered and scarred by humanity's crimes on it. But truth be said, once we become extinct as a species, the forests will recover, the oceans will replenish and so on. Don't worry about the planet. This struggle is fundamentally about whether humanity can make a massive economic and social transition to a point where humanity learns to coexist with nature in a mutually interdependent relationship for centuries and centuries to come. Put differently, this struggle is fundamentally about protecting our children and their children's future. Now, just what I've said, just those words, I might not sound very brilliant and very, like, you know, intelligent and, and, and jargony, 
But when we say to no ordinary people, this struggle is about protecting our children and their children, just that sentence opens up the conversation to more people feeling they have a stake. When you're talking about degrees and, 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 and emissions levels and so on, and I think we have this problem both with, with finance as well as with, with climate, but just to say that on the finance side, since I've left Greenpeace, most of my climate work has been to build a new climate finance campaign. It's going to be located within Climate Action Network, CAN International. We have got a multi-layered campaign. The finance thing is very complicated. As a non-finance person, I deliberately wanted to do this so that I could bring, hopefully, some normalcy, you know, in terms of words we use. But there's so many different levels of the campaign, from divest from fossil fuels, invest from uh, invest in renewables, which is aimed at pension funds, foundations, trusts, universities, and so on. That's got four trillion dollars that has been earmarked for divestment in the space of three years, but much more to be done. Then what we're seeing at another level when we are campaigning against what we call carbon bomb projects, like the big Australia coal mine, normally we would go after the Adani, you know, Prime Minister Modi's big friend in India, we'd go after the company that's building the coal mine. But we put that on hold because we went after all the banks that were thinking about financing it and got every international and Australian bank to say no. So we need to build the capacity of people to deal with how do you do financial campaigning. There are various uh, layers more, but I'm reading Isabel's body language there, and I won't go into the details. <laughs> I could, of course, listen to you all day, Kumi, but unfortunately we didn't have it. Yeah. Um, just on the point about the colour of the skin and the impacts. Um, I don't I don't disagree with you, but I think that there's a more profound problem with climate change, which is how do you render urgent what is a long, slow background event? And that has always been a storytelling problem with climate change. I was um, <coughs> watching Arnie Schwarzenegger, the, the Terminator governor, um, coming back at Trump, and he mentioned... Um, and I, I don't want to say the figure because I might get it wrong, but it's it's tens of thousands of people who die in the United States every year prematurely because of air pollution. Air pollution yeah. We have this problem in London. Yeah. Is this on the front page of, of, of the news? Hardly at all. If those dead, if those figures of, of, of deaths were associated with another event, um, it would be, of course, you know, it would change government policy overnight. So there is a there is a problem, and Greenpeace was always very good at messaging. It was always very good at, at, at turning background events into, you know, creating symbols for them and, and creating those stories. But it is difficult with climate change, I think. Yeah, um, absolutely. So I want um, I, I've got another question on my iPad, and I know there are some questions in the room. So can I just while we while we're collecting uh, those, um, there there is a question on the on the more. Um, just just very quickly on the finance, the kind of methodologies that, that exist in the insurance industry for assessing risk, are they applicable in terms of the wider uh, uh, finance approach to climate change? Have they been applied and, and are, would they be helpful? I think it's roughly, I praise you slightly, yeah, including disclosure. Um, I, well, I think, I think any work that's been done in the insurance industry is a first mover in this uh, can certainly teach us something, but it's not—it's not entirely the same thing because you know the the kind of calculations that a, say a cement manufacturer will do to to work out how exposed it is, um, or or an oil and gas company 
it's going to be sort of slightly different. I mean, for, from a bank, for example, we have to look at our, our clients primarily. That's our sort of first order look at it and 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 say, well, what trajectory are are they on, and what does that mean for our own risk calculations over the uh, the assets that we're holding? And that's a slightly different question than the okay. insurance uh, company. But, but you know, there's we, we're factoring in in the work that is going on in the G20. Uh, it, it includes the insurance specialists who have, I say, trailblazed to some extent on these questions to ensure that we capture their knowledge. Because of course they're shelling out for the impact. So um, mm. a gentleman there had a question. Uh, oh, lots of questions. So we're going to let's take them three at a time. So. Let's... <laughs> Um, just to cover the downsides of the Trump decision, uh, any views on the effects of this on Australia and Canada? Because those three were always the three anti-musketeers, the three laggards in, in climate change. I'm talking politically here and mainly at the federal level. And actually, while you're at that, also the effect on Saudi Arabia. In other words, can there be some political backtracking? Yes. Hello. Please tell us who you are. Uh, I don't I don't know if this is on, but I'm um, Tracy from Oxfam and um, similar question, actually. And let's be reminded that Trump said he was pulling out of Paris, but also that he would negotiate something fairer, whatever that meant. Um, fortunately, we saw that suggestion cold shouldered by Italy, Germany and France, who immediately issued a statement that the, the agreement could not be renegotiated. Um, let's hope we see the same by the G20, but there weren't, you know, the, it was notable that the UK didn't stand alongside those countries. It's unclear where, where other countries are going to be. So I'm interested in any uh, reflections or expectations on what we might expect at the G20 and beyond in terms of countries' reaction to this suggestion. Might there be some who are kind of tempted to uh, explore what that means or not? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, Sam Bickersteth from CDKN. Um, putting aside whether the US will now be disruptive within the negotiations or not, um, reminding ourselves that Paris, Paris was a triumph of multilateralism. It'd be interesting to hear from you, the panel, about how lower nadir of against you know multilateralism the decision of Trump um, was last week. And I guess you've already indicated as well that China can step in a bit, but it's got massive constraints in filling this space. How much can other communities in the US really fill the space? It's much more than just pulling out of the GCF and the leadership. There's a whole set of technology drivers and even what USAID does or, or LEDs GP, which is partly run out of this building and, and so on. There's so many other parts that have to fill that space. So it'd be good to get a sort of stand back sense of where we are in the multilateral response to what is obviously required to climate change from the That's panel. That's great, Sam. Thank you very much. I might sort of just add a little bit to Sam's question about um, we heard a lot after Paris and actually also in the run-up to Paris about other sectors and the importance of other sectors, so business, industry, uh, sub-national governments, uh, collaboration between them, how how powerful a driver can these be, you know, is, is in a sense the top-level the top level process less relevant now. So um, Australia, Canada, who wants to take on the political 
uh, question. First on Canada, because yeah. okay. I am Canadian. Uh, that, that, uh, that certainly qualifies you, but yeah. And then maybe a little bit on this kind of multilateralism question as well. I can't speak to some of the others, uh, but uh, yeah, maybe a bit on the G20 as well. So um, in terms of Canada, I've actually uh, been... Uh, pleasantly surprised, I guess, in terms of the quite strong rhetoric coming from the Canadian government, from Trudeau, um, from Catherine McKenna, the um, environment minister, uh, around kind of Canada's uh, commitment to Paris. So I don't think that you will um, necessarily see a sort of watering down or Canada and the US and Australia coming together to kind of try to, to renegotiate. I don't think at least the Canadian government would be part of that. I do think, however, that Canada does benefit from the flexibility of the Paris Agreement. And we see that in terms of um, kind of continued support for tar sands, for new pipelines, et cetera. Um, but I'm encouraged, and maybe this sort of touches to the subnational. I think really, I mean, it's what we see now on climate change is it's all hands on deck and therefore you can have big impacts from different places. So this is potentially sort of parochial Canadian politics, but we have a British Columbia government that's now just been um, a kind of co new coalition that's been formed um, between two parties that have a very strong green agenda. And that the provinces are quite powerful in Canada, which means you may not have kind of new LNG facilities or pipelines approved on the west coast of Canada as a result of this election. So I think sort of every city government fight, every provincial government fight, th these things are sort of quite important now in terms of, of climate. And I think at least in terms of Canada, the provinces moving in the right direction will create more space for the federal government to stay kind of on the right path on climate. In terms of the G20, I mean, we follow the G20 closely, as I said, because of the G20 commitment um, on fossil fuel subsidies. And we are, um, I guess, quite concerned that we won't see progress on that. We saw some progress in the G7, but which was just sort of was progress by the G7 energy ministers who committed to a 2025 deadline for phasing out fossil fuel subsidies. That commitment was not repeated by the G7 leaders at the meeting um, that Trump attended uh, in Italy um, two weeks ago. And uh, I think we have some concern about what's going to come out out of the G20. But we, again, are seeing, I guess, some signals that I see is almost more positive than I was expecting. You've seen countries like Russia coming out and saying they're committed to Paris, you know, India potentially lining up alongside China to be kind of leaders in the space that um, has been left, the vacuum that's been left by the US. So I think um, no matter what in the G20, there's probably going to be some kinds of tiering in terms of countries that are going to be more proactive. But I don't think we'll see a kind of wholesale backsliding of the G20 as a result of, of um, Trump's decisions. Well, well just very quickly, on I, I agree in the G20. As I said earlier, I think it gets more bumpy, but it's not... Um, um, you know, it's, it's not a sort of deal maker uh, breaker in terms of Paris and the trajectory we're on. Just a quick thing on Australia, because you're right, it's it's a government that's, if you like, similarly politically positioned as as the US. But I was there just a couple of months ago, and the, interestingly, the the sort of legal profession, senior legal practitioner, has come out with the the legal opinion that that firms that don't um, don't both recognise the risk that they're running if they're not consistent with a sort of with a Paris outcome, and don't disclose what they're doing to be consistent, uh, or disclose that risk to their investors. They stand to be legally liable, and the regulators have picked that up, uh, that decision, and they've started to say, well, you know, 
you've you've had a legal warning here, and if you don't sort of do something about that, you'll also be getting the regulator down on your back. So, out of line with actually the political discourse, you have the economy driven by other senior professions that are independent from the government moving in a direction, which I just think is encouraging. So, so. so you've watched these negotiations very closely. So, so I think Sam's question and Tracy's question. Yeah. So, I think. Um, on negotiating something fairer, I don't think there's appetite to start a whole process, and there won't be. But don't be, don't forget though that every year, before, uh, for those of you who don't know, every year there's a COP, right? <laughs> At the end of conference the year, conference of the parties, the conf conference of the parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Okay, that's a full name, right? But before, that normally happens November, December, but there's sometimes up to three what are called intercessionals that actually happen before and usually in Bonn where the UNFCC sits. So I think there's possibility of those processes being frustrated by um, US administration officials. While that's a possibility, I think the more likely approach and stance they will take is that of disengagement. They, I think they'll pull away from it a lot uh, because, I mean, I think, you know, to be a U.S. climate change negotiator in that context, professionally speaking, that's like worse than being a dentist. You know what I mean? I, you know, I mean, people are going to hate you when you, when, you, when, you, when you go to the negotiations. I mean, uh, but, but on your question, uh, Ian, on... Uh, Australia I'm worried about a lot because they are they have one of the biggest planned carbon bombs in Queensland at the moment uh, which is the biggest mine coal mine ever and it, we've managed to keep it on hold for a couple of years now because we went up the snowy mountains the, the financiers you know all the financiers <laughs> this is the Adani coal mine with, with India uh, but I think they're going to feel bolstered even though the Trump-Australia Prime Minister conversation started off on a bad footing, they seem to have healed their things. But Saudi Arabia is an interesting thing. Right? Think about this, right? The newly elected leader of the so-called free world, whatever that is, right, chooses to make his first international trip to Saudi Arabia, a country that it's not fair to say it's not a democracy because... That's putting it mildly, right? <laughs> a country that promotes one of the most problematic uh, uh, sects within Islam, Wahhabism, which is the biggest driver in terms of ideological sustenance for Islamic terrorism, uh, and where women's rights are. I mean, I think it tells a very different story in terms of what the social political frame of that presidency is. but. Economically speaking, I think this is about trying to bolster them to say stick to oil because they were being they were being ground down in Paris, right? What they went in in the beginning of 2015 and where they ended, even though they didn't move as fast as far as we wanted, but in the end they were actually you know one. And so um, and I they think they had made big announcements about solar. Yes, and 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 basically they can you know they also you know solar power or could be they could be a solar power. Power, right? And and they and, and they so on 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 the question of multilateral impact, Sam. In a funny sort of way, 
the fact that the world has stood so united against the Trump announcement, in some ways, it actually has sort of kept alive. Uh, Trump has sort of sensitized people in a way to the importance of the world staying together when we're addressing uh, problems that do not respect national boundaries, right? Uh, but let's be blunt about it, right from the get-go, Trump was opposed to multilateralism in terms of his campaigning, what he said about the United Nations, mm-hmm. and, and so on and so forth. But I, I would want to go back to the point about we must go back. You get any young person who's a researcher, go look at the resolutions of each COP and trace who played the biggest role in reducing the level of ambition, and you'll find the end of the United States very, very firmly. Certainly the eight years when Bush was there, right? It was a disaster. And by the way, it wasn't significantly better under Obama. But however one might want to sanitize it, uh, under the eight years of Obama, we made progress, but certainly not as much as when Obama was campaigning and talking about a planet in peril and Just on the point of unfairness, um, I I am right in thinking that the United States wrote its own program, I mean, as every other country did, that the nationally determined contributions are written by the United States. And it's voluntary. If anyone's being unfair, they're being unfair to themselves. Uh, It's voluntary and they can rewrite them. So the idea of renegotiating Paris is nonsensical in that context. Every complaint that Trump made about Paris is within the power of the United States to adjust. Well, sort of. Yeah, it's, there's, yeah, there is meant to be a ratcheting up and an increasing of ambition. There's meant to be a And I think right. I've, I mean, again, there was, there's been so much. But there are no sanctions for failing to. In the last to, five days. Yeah. But there, well, there was a question raised, and again, it could be spurious, that there could be kind of a legal issue if they went down rather than up. But um, maybe international lawyers in the audience or online can provide some clarity around that. Right. Next round. So. Neil Bird here at ODI. An observation and then a, a hopefully a related question. The observation is now that the United States has um, stopped any further um, funding to the Green Climate Fund, Japan is by far the biggest contributor to that fund by a very significant amount. And we've not heard that country mentioned so far. And that leads to the question to the panel. All societies, including the international community, look to leaders to offer a positive vision of the future. Where do you see that leadership coming from in the near term? Thank you. Um, uh, I'm Kyle Cheng. I'm a mental health master student at King's. Uh, so I want to talk about the the, the notion of health, it, which has actually came out a few times in in among the panel. Uh, Ms. Figueres herself talked a lot about uh, the, the 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 connection between climate and health. Once at last year's WHA and another time at also last year at the launch of uh, Lancet's Climate Watch. So. She's been saying how, and I think it, this is also sort of, uh, I think, a consensus for the panel when you talk about how Mr. Schwarzenegger uh, mentioned that air pollution killed a lot of people in the States, that uh, health is a 
a relatable issue compared to to degrees or or or, or maybe planets because people care about their own health. Uh, but also at the same time, this year's WHA, the uh, the chief negotiator of COP twenty three from Fiji, uh, Ambassador Shamin Khan, she mentioned that well, as you know, the the technical briefing in Bonn was right before WHA, and she came from Bonn to Geneva to WHA, and she was saying how there were literally no discussion on health in Bonn. And while people in Geneva, while we were talking passionately about how, uh, you know, climate affect health and health affect climate, and we should be really active, we should be really out speaking about that. There's really nothing uh, being said about health in the, clim- uh, in the, in the climate communities. So, your question, yeah, I was just wondering, what is your take on this issue? What, what, what do you think, uh, maybe is, uh, is the health community not doing enough? What do you expect from the health community to maybe contribute to the climate, you know, actions? And yeah, thank, thank you. you. We'll take a, a third one, which is the lady over there. And uh, we're, we're moving into the closing. Hi, I'm Laurie Gehring from the Thompson Reuters Foundation. I had a question for Stuart. I think that this issue that you talked about of the pipeline and the lack of that, I, I hear that more and more from all sorts of different kinds of audiences, that there's basically lots of money looking for projects um, and that's not well invested now. And there's lots of projects looking for money, but putting them together just seems this agonizing thing, not least because of just sort of old structures that exist. What do you think really needs to be done to break that and to get that pipeline hooked up so the money flows? Can I just... Ask the panel to be reasonably succinct in this round because we're we're beginning to push up against our time limits. Stuart, do you want to answer that? Right. Yeah. So, so I'll just take that one di- directly. So the um, uh, a number of issues. Uh, sometimes it's that the investors are not used to operating in the countries and geographies in which some of the need is, um, and. Uh, uh, also, there's a an issue with uh, the extent to which the time that they can put their money at, at risk um, versus the um, you know when they're going to get the, the 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 profits and the return over a longer time, etc. Sorry, but the the first thing that you can do that's useful is to develop means for the public and the private sector to share risk, um, and and that means, for example that the World Banks or the IFC, the MDBs, they come in, uh, rather than taking on a whole project themselves and being the funder of it, they just put a little bit down or they put down a guarantee that then makes the private sector more comfortable to come in. I mean, the Chinese chief economist of the PBOC says we will not get the money that we need into sustainable investments unless 80% of it is private sector. So we need to develop different public and private sector ways of working together in order so that the private sector can then come in and take the risk. Um, and that's one of the uh, the key uh, elements that needs to needs to happen. Thank you. Um, I can quickly kind of speak to the health question. Uh, I, I think it's sort of the same as not seeing anything about fossil fuels. Nobody talks about it in the convention. It's not in the agreements. There are very few side events um, that we you know we're starting to see a couple at every COP. Uh, but I don't think that should be discouraging. I think in particular, health is becoming an indicator in cities and in, in different countries under which it is much easier to sort of 
make decisions and focus attention. So uh, we are part of a partnership um, of organizations that work on a program called the New Climate Economy. And a lot of that work was around sort of what are the economic benefits of addressing climate. But within that, you know, you have governments that are making economic decisions alongside, well, what are the social benefits? What are the kind of health benefits that they can look at and measure along with jobs and other things to to make these investment decisions and to make policy decisions. And I think health is a really important one. And particularly, we we know, you know, in the case of, of very big countries and in this country where it's getting worse and worse, air pollution is one of the more tangible. And although maybe it's not as part, much part of kind of the wider narrative that we would want to see, it is on the policy agenda. So I guess I wouldn't get discouraged that there's a lot of things that are not mentioned in the international negotiations. That doesn't mean that they're not really important focus points for work, um, but it may often be at the, kind of at a, at a subnational level or at a, at a country level. It is fairly extraordinary that, that after the Paris, the French heat wave and the 7,000 de- deaths in, in France from heat, that, that it wasn't, it didn't stay at the top of the, of the public attention. It's extraordinary. In fact, I think one of the things, just I'll stay on that question, yes. Are you done? Oh. Yeah. Um, is the, the women's movement decades ago gave us a very powerful uh, concept, but a terribly cumbersome word called intersectionality, right? Which was saying that irrespective of how, we, uh, you know, if you want to really address gender equality, you needed to understand how gender interacted with race, class, ability and so on. Similarly, with climate, if we are going to succeed, we need to understand the intersections of climate with the economy, climate with health, climate with social welfare and so on. And we are, and, and in this, I think, these, the, the traditional environmental movement must carry some of the responsibility because they also contributed to this idea about there's something called the environment there, there's something right. called development there, and we need to break those silos. Um, I want to answer your question. Oh, sorry, just on the health thing in the COP uh, 21, uh, the COP in Durban in 2011, right? That one there was the first one, and Durban's my home city, so proudly saying the first time there was a specific gathering of climate and health happened there. There's a network of health professionals now since 2011 that are mobilizing. If you see me later, I can just hook you up with that. You have okay. 90 seconds on Japan and leadership. Ish. <laughs> um, okay. So Japan is a hard one to call right now. Uh, I think right now it would be fair to ex- accept that they will do the right thing and they'll stay in, though I do think that they will start straining financially if they're going to have to fill, if they feel they have to fill the gap, you know, of of, of, of the U.S. in its entirety. Uh, I think that it, it remains to be seen with Japan, but I think there's reason to be anxious, right, because there are warm relations there between the U.S. I want to answer the question of leadership, if I might. Please. Right. Albert Einstein once said, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting to get different results. He also said once that if you're trying to solve a big problem, don't use the same thinking frameworks and logics that got you in the problem in the first place. I give you those two quotations basically to say that 
I'm not looking for leadership from people who hold power in current institutions that are broken, right? Basically, if you look at it, the you know the United States is a liberal oligarchy. It's not a democracy. It has a form of democracy without the substance of democracy. Same set could be said about the United Kingdom, in my judgment. Uh, I mean, what uh, percentage of votes did David Cameron get in the last election? Thirty-three percent, and he has the kind and 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 you know. So basically, within this context. I am not looking for leadership for anybody who is at the World Bank or head of state or anything of that sort. These are all flawed institutions, and we need fresh thinking. We need boldness of believing that something very different can be created for a sustainable world. And I put my uh, faith in leadership in the young people in the global climate movement. I think that's where the most innovative ideas are coming from. That's where the greatest courage is coming from. And I say to young people around the world, resist when adults say to you, young people are leaders of tomorrow. You have to assert leadership today because there might not be a tomorrow for you to assert leadership in. On which rather stark oh, sorry. Ah, sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I didn't know that was going to be the last word. I would have tried to be a little more optimistic than that. Well, it's not entirely yeah. pessimistic, but, yeah, it's a kind of get-on-with-it message, isn't it? And I think, actually, the get-on-with-it message is also a pretty appropriate place for us to pause. Um, I'm sorry we've run out of time. I'm sure we could have continued for quite a long while, but I would like to ask you to thank uh, Stuart, Sheila and Kumi for their great contribution. <laughs> thank you to you for being here. Thank you to our online audience and thank you to ODI for their great hospitality. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. <laughs>